Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Lexicon Valley is sponsored by Blue Apron, the new service that delivers all the farm-fresh ingredients you need to make incredible meals at home. Discover a better way to cook. Visit blueapron.com slash lexicon to get your first two meals free. That's blueapron.com slash lexicon. The following podcast contains explicit language. From Washington, D.C., this is Lexicon Valley, a podcast about language. I'm Bob Garfield with Mike Volo, and today, episode number 62, titled The Pollyanna Hypothesis, wherein we discovered that humans are pretty happy. The question is, why? Hey, Mikey. Hey, Bobby. How you doing, buddy? Splendid. Thank you. And your own self? I'm great. I'm great. So earlier this year, there were a bunch of media headlines, you may have seen them, about a study, a study about language. For example, in the Los Angeles Times, quote, human language accentuates the positive. In the Atlantic, languages are mostly made of happy words. Here is another headline, new study finds positive bias in human languages. Now, first of all, I love how it's emphasized that we're talking about human languages here, right? As, as if it's already been established that, you know, dolphins are total bummers or something. Those high-pitched squeaks or squeals, whatever that noise is that they make, it's just a constant stream of negativity. We humans, we're better than that. Among the species, we're the happiest talkers yeah. ever. <laughs> right. Mike Whale walks into a bar. <laughs> I just want to say for our listeners, I did not know what the subject of today's show was. This is not prepared, but it's uh, my daughter Allison's favorite joke. Two whales are in a bar. The first whale goes... Can we just turn it into dolphins, since we're, I was just using dolphins as an example? What, but she told it to me with whales. Okay, go ahead. <laughs> whales. I don't think it's for me to change the species. I, you know, That would be her call. Okay. Whale goes... <laughs> Other whale says, Frank, you're drunk. <laughs> See, that could work with dolphins too. <laughs> Probably. I don't know how I did on the whale sounds. Allison is uh, a whale mimic genius. And she, by the way, when she does it, she makes it go for about two minutes. <laughs> okay. Okay. So I read this study. 
and I read some of the background academic literature. And I have a few questions, one of which is, what exactly does this mean? So I want to talk this through with you and later on in the episode, ask a couple of questions of one of the lead researchers in this study. Mm -hmm. Okay, so let's first discuss a little bit of background. There's a group at the University of Florida called the Center for the Study of Emotion and Attention. It's part of NIM, this National Institute of Mental Health that we have in this country. And back in 1999, a couple of researchers there, Margaret Bradley and Peter Lang are their names, they wanted to come up with a standard way of measuring how different words make us feel. So, for example, take the word chair. Does that word, Bob, evoke for you feelings of happiness? And if so, how happy? Unhappiness? Or is it more or less neutral? Yeah, I'm chair neutral. Uh, I always have been. Before I went on antidepressants, I tried just sitting in rooms with filled with chairs. And uh, <laughs> Didn't work. no effect, really. I did it for you know, four weeks. Then I had to wean myself off of them by just removing one chair at a time over a period of days until I finally got back to I was. Maybe it was the wrong chair. Maybe if they had been Barca loungers. <laughs> <laughs> now, see, it's interesting because you said chair and I immediately thought of unupholstered furniture. Mm-hmm. Right. Which I think is typically what comes to mind. A, a wooden Windsor chair, maybe. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, had, you, had it been an overstuffed chair, that might have made me ecstatic. But yeah, that's not what came to, into my mind's eye. Right. So you can imagine that if we establish quantifiable norms or averages for how particular words tend to make us feel, in other words, attach a number to each word, then we could use that as a way to do a number of things, maybe evaluate or assess people who have problems with emotion, right? For certain spectrum disorders, say, one's emotional calibration can be out of sync with the average person. Now, that's my probably superficial possibly offensive shorthand description of people I've known with spectrum disorders. Your experience may differ. But you see how this measuring of words' emotional impact could be useful. Mm -hmm. Okay, so here is what Bradley and Lang did. And let's use the word chair again as an example. If you participated in this study, you would see that word chair on a piece of paper, and there would be a corresponding series of nine little bubbles arranged left to right, like on a standardized test. And just to be totally clear about what they wanted, at one end of the nine bubbles was a line drawing of a person with a big smile. At the other end was a person with a big frown, and in the middle, a person with a horizontal line for a mouth to indicate no expression at all. So you would get about 50 of these words at a time arranged randomly. One actual sheet of paper that I've seen from the study has brutal, vehicle, girl, ambition, sweetheart, paradise, and each of these words would have its own corresponding series of bubbles. So if you filled in the very end bubble with the frowny guy, Bradley and Lang would score that as a one. If you filled in the bubble at the opposite end, if the word made you feel as happy as can be, that would be scored a nine, and it would be scored two through eight for the bubbles in between, with five being that middle bubble a totally neutral feeling. And again, there's no trickery involved here. The subjects were told explicitly in the instructions, quote, the study being conducted today is investigating emotion and concerns how people respond to different types of words. 
Please work at a rapid pace and don't spend too much time thinking about each word. Rather, make your ratings based on your first and immediate reaction as you read each word. Now, if you did this with lots of people and lots of words, you could calculate an average score somewhere on that scale from one to nine, unhappy to happy, for each word, which is exactly what they did for more than a thousand words, including that word chair that I used as an example, which, as you suggested for yourself, your chair neutral, had an average score of almost exactly five. It was 5.08. Other words that scored very neutral within 0.1 or 0.2 of exactly five were ink, hammer, taxi, and serious, to name just a few. And in the case of, say, ink, hammer, and taxi, these are pretty utilitarian items. They don't inspire any great emotion. And the word serious, I would guess that that comes out neutral because that word seems to exist in a place somewhere outside of the happy-unhappy dichotomy. So that all makes sense, right? Until you tell me that people put smiley faces next to anguish and murder, I'm right with you. (laughs) Okay, so let's talk about some of those very emotionally charged words. One word that scored among the highest was triumphant, which had an average score of 8.82, which means that most people filled in the bubble all the way at the happy end, the number nine bubble. Yeah, cue the chariots of fire theme. Okay. Cued right now. As far as I could tell, the two unhappiest words among the 1,000 or so that they collected data for, both with a score of 1.25, were... Any guesses? Well, I'm trying to think of the, the saddest things in the world, and I'm thinking of dying children and genocide and so forth, but uh, rape might do the trick. Wow. Yeah, you got it. Rape is one of them, and suicide is the other. Now, you may be wondering, I was wondering, how does a word like rape score anything higher than a one? Who would fill in any bubble other than the bubble all the way at the unhappy end? The answer... <laughs> to that question is some men. As it turns out, Bradley and Lang broke out the data by sex, and I went looking and found that men averaged 1.70 for the word rape, while women averaged 1.08. Now, were the men congressional Republicans? Is that a reference to the legitimate rape comment by the congressperson whose name I can't remember? Yeah, yeah, that's what that was. So this got me wondering what other biases are present in the data that we don't know about, right, that weren't Mm -hmm. controlled for, and how might that affect the data's usefulness? We don't have any demographics other than sex, and apparently they made an effort to get equal numbers of men and women. And it occurred to me, just to use a sort of random example, I mentioned before that the word taxi came out totally neutral. And in fact, it averaged exactly 5.00 across all the people who participated in the study. But remember, this study took place in Florida. And it's possible that the word taxi is not so neutral for people who live in more urban settings. It's possible that for many African Americans, and in particular, black men. Yeah, I was thinking the same thing. So 
it made me wonder if taxi would bring negative connotations among that cohort, or if the taxi is there and has stopped for you, that makes you happy because you have so beaten the odds. Right, right. And we should say more explicitly that black men have had historically a difficult time hailing cabs in many cities in the U.S. And I'm most familiar with it being a problem in New York since I'm that's the area of the country where I'm from. And it was probably more difficult back in 1999 when this study was conducted. So that's one issue that I had with the collection of this data. We don't really know what the demographics were here. And so it could be that these numbers could tweak up or down depending on how well you controlled for that. This is far more interesting than I expected it to be, Mike. What uh, got all high fives? What got delirium, ecstasy, and uh, zen-like contentment? We'll get there in just a sec, but first, Lexicon Valley is sponsored by Blue Apron, a new service that delivers all the ingredients you need to make incredible meals at home. They provide farm-fresh ingredients, perfectly portioned, And it comes with an easy-to-follow recipe card so you can create a delicious meal in 35 minutes or less. A couple of nights ago, I cooked their seared cod with spring vegetables and lemon mustard vinaigrette. It arrives in the mail, two cod fillets, 10 ounces of fingerling potatoes, radishes, asparagus, a lemon, tarragon, butter, shallot, capers, mustard, everything you need to make this meal, except, of course, some of the very basic staples like salt and pepper. It's so simple to follow along with the recipe. It was delicious. Better yet, you can try out their service and get two meals for free. Discover a better way to cook. Visit blueapron.com slash lexicon. Remember, if you use that promo code, you will get your first two meals free. That's blueapron.com slash lexicon. Okay, let's fast forward now to 2009 when a couple of mathematicians at the University of Vermont, Peter Dodds and Christopher Danforth, took the data from Bradley and Lang, the scores for these 1,000 words, 1.25 for suicide, as I mentioned, 3.37 for lawsuit, which is generally an unhappy thing, 5.20 for paper, pretty neutral, 8.72 for love, Who doesn't love love? They took all of those numbers and words and used them in a way that is interesting but may or may not be meaningful, which is one of the things I'm I'm struggling with. So the title of the paper they ended up publishing hints at what they did. It was called Measuring the Happiness of Large-Scale Written Expression, Songs, Blogs, and Presidents. So you could probably guess what they did. All right, so they take um, a couple of songs. Let's just say they take uh, I Can't Get No Satisfaction. I think it's just called Satisfaction. Mm-hmm. The rest is in parentheses by the Rolling Stones. And maybe they take um, Accentuate the Positive. You've got to accentuate the positive, eliminate the negative, and latch on to the affirmative. Don't mess with Mr. In-Between. You got to spread joy up to the maximum, bring gloom down to the minimum, have faith or pandemonium, liable to walk upon the scene. To illustrate his last remark, Jonah. So I'm sure that one scores really high on the uh, happiness scale and uh, maybe satisfaction less so. 
unless, unless, now that I think of it, since all these words are scored out of context, that the very use of the word negative in accentuate the positive drags down the overall score for that song. And maybe even country songs that are so depressing by invoking things like dogs and trucks and and lovers actually score high because those words, again, have been graded elsewhere out of context. Yes, exactly. And they address this, Dodds and Danforth. They say, quote, since our method does not account for the meaning of words in combination, in other words, in context, it is suitable only for large-scale texts. Measuring the happiness of a single song is meaningless because the context could be skewed apart from the individual meanings of the words. But if you're calculating the happiness of a thousand songs, or better yet, 10,000 songs, then that, they're suggesting, is far more meaningful because happy words tend to be used more so in happy contexts and unhappy words in unhappy contexts, and that will take care of itself over a large body of text. And by large body of text, you mean Moby Dick or the entire catalog of Hank Williams Sr.? Well, let's talk about songs. In fact, they did not evaluate 1,000 or 10,000 songs, but the lyrics for 230,000 songs by more than 20,000 artists between the years 1960 and 2007. Now, these 230,000 songs contained about 60 million words. And you might imagine that in a perfect study, you would assign a happiness score to every one of those 60 million words. Wherever the word suicide appeared, that would get a 1.25. Wherever the word paper appeared, it would get a 5.20. But remember, there were only 1,000 words that Bradley and Lang obtained happiness scores for. So, for example, if the word dawn, D-A-W-N, appears somewhere in those songs, we can assign it a happiness value of 6.16 because that's one of the words that Bradley and Lang got data for. But if the word dusk, D-U-S-K, appears, well, we don't have a score for that word. All right. So there's 60 million discrete words in those whatever number of thousands of songs. What percentage of them had Bradley and Lang happiness scores? About 6%, which is actually much higher than it sounds because there are a lot, a lot of words, so-called function words, that don't have any real content, right? Like prepositions and articles that you wouldn't necessarily assign a score to anyway. And these words make up so much of our language. By one count, the five words the, of, and, a, and in are about 15% of large bodies of text, just those five words. So having happiness scores for 6% of all of the words in the songs is much more significant than it sounds. Mm -hmm. Those words are the mortar, and we're grading the bricks. So what did they find? First of all, over the course of those 47 years, 1960 to 2007, we got significantly less happy in our songwriting. It decreased steadily year after year until the mid-1990s when it started to level off. So we started in the early 1960s at about a 6.7 happiness level with our songs. I want to hold your hand. Happy! Right. And on that 1 to 9 scale, 
by 2007, we were down to about 6.0, 6.1. So it dropped because words like, and you asked me before what were some of these words that we were ecstatic about, words like love, baby, home, music, good, these are words with very high happiness scores, and they started to appear less and less in our song lyrics. And some words with very low happiness scores started to appear more and more. So, for example, words like hate, pain, death, dead, sick, and fear. That must have uh, corresponded with uh, Alanis Morissette's career. (laughs) Well, first of all, some of the artists with the happiest lyrics, the Beach Boys, Buddy Holly, Perry Como, Luther Vandross, and Diana Ross and the Supremes. The least happy band, lyrically, was not... Alanis said It was a little bit earlier. It was a band called Slayer, which you may know from their 1986 breakout album, Rain, R-E-I-G-N, Rain in Blood. They... <laughs> <laughs> I'm not familiar with Slayer. Well, they were Although, really big. Know, my daughter's getting uh, married about the time this episode is released, and maybe I'll rethink what we'll play for the first dance. That seems so sweet. That's the album, remember, Rain in Blood. They won two Grammys for Best Metal Performance for the songs mm-hmm. Eyes of the Insane and Final Six, which, which contains the following less-than-happy stanza. Uh-huh. <laughs> dead flowers for a faceless dead. A city engulfed by the smell of death. (laughs) Bodies piled beneath the mist. Uh Walking dead among the living. (laughs) (laughs) That's pretty. That is, oh my gosh, that's pretty. I'm going to whistle that all day long. (laughs) Okay, so Slayer's particularly exaggerated and apparently comic brand of unhappiness. Notwithstanding, this actually helps explain why lyrics overall got less... (laughs) A faceless dead. Oh, Got less happy overall from 1960 to 2007. I love Debbie Boone's cover of (laughs) Faceless Dead. Classic. Classic, yeah. I don't know if she really needed the sitar in that though. Uh, But if you think about it, there are some genres of music with especially bleak lyrics that didn't really come on the scene in a robust way until later along that timeline, right? Like death metal or thrash metal as it's called, punk, certain subgenres of rap. And in fact, if you analyze just song titles, which Dodds and Danforth did for 630,000 songs, then you find that gospel and soul Pop and reggae are the most cheerful. Classic rock is right in the middle. And then rap, punk, and metal are at the bottom. They also analyzed 150 million words from blogs from 2005 through 2009. During that time, overall happiness crept up from about 5.75 to 6. And if you break it down by age... This is sort of interesting. If you break it down by age, 13 and 14-year-olds have the lowest happiness score. They disproportionately use words like sick, hate, stupid, sad, depressed, 
bored, lonely, mad, and fat, people get happier and happier as they get older with those between the ages of 45 and 60 being the happiest, and then it starts to decline again so that people in their mid-70s to mid-80s exhibited the same happiness level, in their blog posts at least, as 17-year-olds. And like 17-year-olds, they really can't be trusted in a motor vehicle. No, and, and you're fast approaching that point, so you should probably give your car to me. <laughs> Just saying. <laughs> All right. You know what? Done. Okay. So men and women, by the way, demonstrated, at least, again, as reflected in these blog posts, about the same average happiness, but women had a greater range, a greater variance. They were more likely to use both words that had a very high happiness score, like love, loved, and the word happy itself, as well as words that had a very low score, like hurt, sad, and alone. Men are much more constrained in their use of emotionally charged words, which we would guess. And finally, the authors evaluated the happiness level of all of the State of the Union addresses, but concede that the data set there is sufficiently small that any grand conclusions one might draw are highly speculative. That said, I'll let you guess who the two or three most upbeat presidents were, at least by this measure, if you look at the words in the State of the Union addresses. Are we talking about modern presidents? Are we? Do I have to think about John Quincy Adams? We're talking about every single president up to and including George W. Bush. Okay, I would say the, the uh, highest happiness scores were achieved by Abraham Lincoln, John F. Kennedy, and Ronald Reagan. You are almost exactly right. John... Really? F- yeah. <laughs> John F. Kennedy and Ronald Reagan. Wait, 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 wait. Hold it, hold it. We got to stop here. <laughs> Did I know anything about this? No, not at all. So we never discussed states of the union, no. presidents, happiness scores, correct? Not at all. So there is only one conclusion that we can draw from this, and that is, um, let me help you. I am better than you. I'm a better man. <laughs> You're definitely a better something. Okay. So what, no, seriously, what are the scores? You were right. Kennedy and Reagan were among the three highest Lincoln was not. Lincoln, if you remember, mentioned stuff about war and other depressing subjects. Uh, The other highest score was Eisenhower. Mm. His swan song or farewell address wasn't exactly a trip to the orgasmatron. Remember a warning (laughs) about the military-industrial complex? Yeah. Okay, so that's the background. Let's now fast forward once again to 2015, this year, when Dodds and Danforth and some of their colleagues published the paper that I mentioned at the beginning, the paper that got a bunch of media attention. The first thing that they did was to redo the data gathering that Bradley and Lang did back in 1999 from scratch, using the same one to nine scale, only this time, instead of collecting data on 1,000 words, they got data on 10,000 words, including for the sake of thoroughness, many of those no-brainer neutral words like prepositions and conjunctions, which, lo and behold, turned out to be very neutral. They then took those 10,000 words and translated them, using both Google Translate and human beings, translated them into nine other languages, and then collected that same happiness data with native speakers for each of those 10,000 words in each of those nine other languages. Was one of the other languages whale? Close, 
French. Yeah, one of the other languages was French. <laughs> so for those keeping track at home, that's a total of 100,000 words divided up evenly across 10 different languages. English, Spanish, French, whale, German, Brazilian Portuguese, Korean, simplified Chinese, Russian, Indonesian, and Arabic. 100,000 words, each with its own happiness score. And what they found by analyzing large databases across all of these languages, databases like Twitter, newspapers, movie scripts, songs, books, what they found is that across all of the languages, there is a strong positivity bias. Now, back in the 1960s, in the late 1960s, a couple of researchers posited what they called the Pollyanna hypothesis, that there was a hypothetical universal positivity bias in human communication. This paper from 2015 was the first time that anyone had really proven that in any kind of quantifiable, large-scale way. So what exactly would be a positivity bias in language if all languages measured showed that people favor positive words it makes me wonder two things. Is there really any statistical significance between a word that rates 5 and a word that rates 5.8? And secondly, is the sample of words large enough to impute a general human tendency towards happiness and communication? And three, was Slayer included in this final study because <laughs> they probably would have dragged that number way, way down. Well, one would think, unless unless the respondents were heavily tilted to those Florida men, <laughs> right? Know, the rape not haters. Well, you know, Bob, you mentioned Moby Dick earlier, and what Dodds and Danforth and the rest did as a way to, I guess, show how well this data actually tracks the emotion of what's happening at any given time in a narrative, be it the narrative of Twitter or the narrative of a novel, they actually tracked the mood using this happiness scale of Moby Dick, of The Count of Monte Cristo, of Crime and Punishment, and some other long novels. And you could see that what's happening in the novel is actually reflected by the data. They graphed it so that Moby Dick has peaks and valleys depending on the words that Melville used to describe what's happening in the novel. And you see the very end of the novel, it does not end well, is one of the very low points. Same with Crime and Punishment. The Count of Monte Cristo ends on a pretty upbeat note, and you see at the very end the graph shoots up. And of course, The Count of Monte Cristo is in French, so they did this using those 10,000 words translated into French. Same with Russian. They did it also with some movies, including Pulp Fiction. Again, what's fascinating here is that you see the data actually does seem pretty accurate. The happiest moment, the peak, as reflected through the script, the screenplay, the is during the, the dance contest when Mia and Vincent are at Jack Rabbit Slims, I think it was called. 
The lowest point is when... In the pawn shop? Yes, exactly. The lowest point <laughs> is when Butch and Marcellus are wrestling in the pawn shop and encounter Zed and his friend and the gimp. There's more going on in that pawn shop than just some wrestling. <laughs> yeah. And so, you know, you just expressed some concern about do we have enough words? Is the difference between a 5.0 and a 5.8 significant enough. I expressed some concern over the data earlier with regard to demographics, but it does seem as though if you look at this data as a template over some works where we can actually see what's happening, we can actually see the context, even though that's not what we're measuring by these individual words, it turns out that measuring these individual words does track with context. I guess what it seems to suggest is that since the aggregate rating exceeds the value 5, when we are communicating, we err on the side of the positive. I don't know if that quite rises to the level of being Pollyanna as a species, but for all of the singing the blues and dark anti-heroes and just general fetching, when we express ourselves on balance we are usually in a pretty good mood. As a finding, that's not nothing, I guess. Yeah, and I suppose that makes sense, right? Because life is good until it's not. It all goes to shit eventually, but until it does, it's hard to sustain a negative outlook, right? Then you're not the kind of person that people want around. And, you know, I said that they use this to graph the mood of Pulp Fiction. They did it with a whole host of movies, and some of the movies that come out at the very bottom, the least cheerful movies, are ones, again, that you would guess. War movies like Platoon, torture porn movies like Saw, Day of the Dead. I would like to see the happyometer for It's a Wonderful Life. It must look like the biggest roller coaster at Six Flags. At parts treacly and sentimental, at parts, you know, depressive and morose. You said happyometer. In fact, they call it the hedonometer, like the hedonism meter. And hmm. they have at hedonometer.org the ability to search for various movies and books. I'm going to, it's a wonderful life. <laughs> it is exactly as you described it, Bob. There is a peak at the very beginning, it falls very low, peaks up again, short valley, peak. Long Valley, Peak, <laughs> Valley, Peak, Valley, Peak. There's a strong valley towards the end and then a very high peak back up all the way to well over seven. So let's call Peter Dodds and ask him what he thinks this all says about us humans, as the articles like to point out in their headlines. Hi, it's Peter speaking. Hey, Peter, it's Mike. Hi, Mike. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Good. Uh, you told me a couple of days ago that you ruptured your tendon while running. So uh, first things first, how are you feeling? Yeah, I still can't walk. I found out I can ride a bike. I'm very determined about these things, so I can get myself onto a bicycle. But yeah, no, I still can't walk because I'm crawling around the house and on crutches. This is, your, this is your excuse to just, you know, lay your feet up. <laughs> It's really not my thing, unfortunately, which is why I get injured. But there you go. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, Peter, Bob is on the phone here with me. Okay. Hi, Bob. Hi, Peter. How are you? Very good. 
I brought Bob up to speed. I told him all about the data that Bradley and Lang collected. I told him about the paper that you published in 2009. And I told him about the most recent paper that you published. Just so everybody knows, you are a professor of mathematics and statistics at the University of Vermont. One thing we know that you don't have and that Bradley and Lang didn't have in their data is demographics. Another thing we know is that you collected data on 10,000 words, which is more than 1,000, which is what they had, but it's still not all of the words that we use commonly in the English language. And we know because you tell us that the difference between 5.0 and 6.0 is somehow significant. How do we know that the data is good, I guess, what I'm asking? Yeah, so there's a lot of proof in the pudding here. And, And if you go back to that original study, that was translated into Spanish, for example, and carried out in a similar way with participants in Madrid. And the first study was done with University of Florida undergraduates, as so many studies are done with undergraduates, of course. So that's a translation into a different language, just straight-up translation. And the correlation is very strong. And when we went to this 10,000-word-strong study, which differs not just in size, but in the way those words fit language, because the original one was done by saying, well, here are interesting words. And so it's a funny set of words. There's church and pancakes, you know, love is in there, but they were chosen by academics, right? So you said it's an expert constructed list. This original list by Bradley and Lang. Yeah. So our list, we're like, well, what do people say? So we we went to Twitter and looked at, you know, lots of words from Twitter, um, from the New York Times for 20 years, 50 or 60 years of music lyrics and Google Books, which is now a couple of centuries of data there, and uh, took the 5,000 most commonly used words from all of those four corpora and then merged them, and that gave us a bit over 10,000 words. And we did a similar thing for all these other languages, which the translations between those 10 sets of 10,000 words are, are strong too. So we take words that we can translate back and forth between any two pairs of languages, and there's a really strong correlation again. So that's one aspect. There's a little robustness there. And then on the instrument side of things, when we deploy this thing and then go and measure, say, tweets coming out of states, for example, cities, then we get very good correlations with the Gallup poll, which is a completely different surveys of people uh, as to well-being. So there's the proof in the pudding part that I was trying to get to. Nation by nation, are the scores approximately the same? Or does Bhutan, I mean, did you do Bhutanese, this supposedly very happy uh, Himalayan state? Right. And, and of course, famous for saying we're not going to make money, we're going to make happiness. doesn't mean that Bhutan is doing well, but that was a sort of a position they took. So there are limitations of what we can do. We took 10 major languages, so we don't have, for instance, Finnish or Nepalese. We found across all these 10 languages and 24 corpora behind them, that there are more positive words than negative words. And in some ways, it sort of reflects the fact that we were social beings and that we've built and built. And so I think that encoding of positivity is a very interesting reflection of what people are collectively. I suppose if we found a language, you haven't studied them all, if we found a language where that wasn't true, then that would be remarkable. Yeah, it'll be very interesting because I think it, you know, it is... Oh, it's it got to be Yiddish, Mike. <laughs> Mike. <laughs> well, it's interesting because, when, you know, going along with this, we would do one language at a time. You know, people would say, I'm sure Russian will be, you know. But, you know, they all came out on this positive side. And, of course, there are terribly negative words in there. It's just that we don't use them quite as often and we don't have as many of them. And you know, we have a, 
many positive words for which we create the negative version by putting un or dis in front of. So, you know, happy and unhappy. And I know you had this double negative piece recently, right? So you can be not unhappy, which doesn't mean you're happy. So mm-hmm. it's a, sort of complicated how we do that. But, you know, we don't start with the word sad as our default word and put unsad. We sort of default generally to a, a positive word. And so there's a lot of structure in, in language that suggests so does that, that this reflect is something innate to humans to default to the positive? I mean, you're, you're I'm, 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 I'm going to speculate yes. that. It does seem, and I mean, we were surprised by this. You know, I, I mean, I remember just playing around with the, the data and saying, oh, you know, it really is kind of on this side, no matter how I poked at it. And then these other languages came in and we, we kept seeing the same pattern. You never really quite answered my question. You, you don't you want, like you to, want compare to compare culture countries. to culture, but... Yeah. So one thing about comparing languages, so it is, it's definitely tricky, but if you, you know, because we're asking people, here are the words that your culture uses in, in different forums, and we want you to respond to them. So, for instance, we asked people in Mexico what they thought of uh, Spanish words and people in Brazil what they thought of uh, Portuguese. And the corpora for those languages, they're kind of at the top. So there is a bit of a spread. They're at the top. We had one Chinese corpus, and that was at the bottom. And this is Google Books. Now, you know, we're measuring, you know, the way we frame it is we're measuring happiness or positivity. Ultimately, we're trying to get to meaning, which I think is, is about stories. And I think that's kind of where our work is going, where it's been heading all along. And that actually makes a lot of sense to me. And I feel like that's what maybe the headlines for this study kind of got wrong, or at least were misleading about. Like, for example, when I was in my early teens, I was a big fan of the band Pink Floyd. And a lot of people think of that music, my wife included, as pretty depressing. And for me, I found it invigorating. But I found, it's meaningful, right? It was yeah, meaningful. Of course, yeah. And it was, he's yeah. singing about his father and about the war. Yeah. And I found it to be almost uplifting in a way yeah. in its dourness. Yeah. And so it's like, how do you measure that exactly? And I think that's about narrative, right? So that's when you listen to the, you're, you're seeing the narrative of this, you're tracing it out and living it. And we love stories. You know, that's how we kind of get over randomness in life. We, we tell stories. There's the kill the monster motif, Beowulf or you know, any number of movies. There's rags to riches. And there's sort of the inversions of these. is romance, of course. There's sort of these big categories of stories. There's journey-type stories. You know, mm-hmm. you have to go and get something. And I think they all kind of boil down to, and this might sound harsh, but kind of survival, actually. And, you know, we're obsessed because we're mortal of, with life and death. So it's all about hatchings, matchings, and dispatchings, as you might frame it. Now, this is gradually dawning on me, that you are not only a guest on Lexicon Valley, you appear to be a listener to... Lexicon Valley, right? This is true. I've um, been absorbing, and I, I've been able to avoid all hiatuses that you guys have had, because I, I came to it maybe a year ago, and I've just been motoring through the whole thing. I've got a couple more to go. So since you are a uh, mathematician and a statistician in the business of putting a mathematical value against uh, nominally subjective differences... I would like you to settle a question that Mike and I were, um, were tussling with before we got you on the line. As a listener mm-hmm. and uh, oh, no. as, as a creator of data, who of the two of us would you say is by far the better person? 
<laughs> okay, I need old transcripts, and I will do that for you. But I'm not going to say straight away. I need to put it through a little, uh, a keep little it, uh, algorithm. Keep in mind, Peter, that I have the power to make the title <laughs> of this episode. Peter Dodd says, Mexicans happy-go-lucky, Chinese depressed. Which I have to say, Science Magazine did, and it was a disaster. I mean, it was an unbelievably terrible framing of it, because it, it is a, a minor difference. And, and, you know, we have to talk about it, but it is, it's something that comes after the fact that all of them are positive. So, yes, yes, you can. And I do understand your partnership here as well. I think I'm more in the... <laughs> I know, I know how, At least how I works. haven't blackmailed you or attempted to yet. So I, I think that's actually uh, gives me the edge going in. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm kind of worried where this can end up. Okay. Yeah. Well, Peter, thank you so much. And as I said to Bob before we got you on the line, for the most part, for a lot of people... Life is good until it's not. So I wish you uh, many, many more years of life being good and of uh, no more snapped tendons. Thank you very much. Same to you. All right. Thanks, Peter. Thanks, Peter. All right. Cheers. Okay, Bob, what's your final takeaway here? Obviously, it's not Spanish happy, Chinese depressed. (laughs) (laughs) Even though that's what Peter said. I mean, I heard it. I don't know if you heard it. but (laughs) That's how I took it. Yeah. Yeah. That's that's my headline. (laughs) He could not say with any kind of scientific authority, but was willing to speculate that we are, by nature, positive beings, and that our language reflects that and that it's encoded. I rather think it's the opposite, that language decodes our instinctive bias towards the optimistic. Hmm. You know, Mike, the one thing that we didn't ask him was how he accounts for ambiguous language, ambiguous words Mm -hmm. that maybe by dictionary definition mean one thing, but in context mean exactly the opposite. Uh, For example, you know, it's not pretty common in slang to say stupid when you mean wonderful or some other negative word to mean exactly the opposite. You know, I don't know if the incidence is enough to skew the results, but I think adjectives might muddy up the data just a little bit. They do address this a little bit in the paper when they talk about how they went about graphing out Moby Dick, for example, and it was very common for Melville to use the words cried or cry, meaning to speak loudly. So they had to, you know, manually account for that. So I think the job there is, once you get this rough instrument, is to then refine it. It's not easy, but I think their their hope is that they're just going to keep building this database deeper and deeper and getting it sharper and sharper. In any case, it's a fascinating project, and the website is hedonometer.org. There's, <laughs> it's one of those websites where if you go on it, you're going to have a hard time getting off because there's just a lot to play with. <laughs> that, that didn't sound right, did it? <laughs> All right. Well, in any case, let us know what you think of the research. Go to hedonometer.org and let us know what you think of how this data tracks with, you know, your favorite movie or your favorite novel. And write to us. We're at lexiconvalley at slate.com. That's lexiconvalley at slate.com. Please follow us on Twitter at Lexicon Valley and subscribe to our feed in iTunes. Joel Meyer is our managing producer and Andy Bowers, our executive producer. All right, Mike, are we done here? Tortured spirits, 
will not let me rest, Bob, these thoughts of mutilated faces completely possessed. Fragmented images flashing rapidly, psychotically abusing me, worming through my head. Yeah, we're done. <laughs> oh, man. I just went to 4.8. Later, Gator. I want to hold.